So um, go ahead and open your Bibles up to Luke 11. Um, here we're going to be continuing the passage uh, in... We're gonna, I'll read the whole thing, but we're going to pick up in verse 5. But uh, let's just go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you uh, for your goodness. Thank you for your love. I thank you for your word. We just ask that you would uh, open up this passage to us. You would speak to our hearts in a way that only you can, in a way that only you could communicate things to us. And uh, you would just uh, help me to share some of the things you've shared with me in preparing this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, let me just read, uh, read the passage. I'm going to back up. I know we've been going over this for, for a while, but it just helps us set the context. And in, in verse uh, 11.1, it says, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And then in verse 5, he picks up with this morning, where I'm going to be picking up. It says, Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me, the door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed, and I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. For every <clears throat> now suppose one of you, you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If then, being evil... If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So this is a pretty neat passage. I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, I was excited to, uh, it kind of got fell to me to get to get to talk about this, because and it talks about the heart of our Father in Heaven. Um, but before... I know this has probably already been covered. Uh, I'm going to repeat some of the stuff that my wonderful team members have said, but uh, I want to go back to why, why is it that the, the disciples asked this question? Why did they ask uh, Jesus to teach them to pray? 
We know that the, the, the God started the nation of Israel with, with Abraham. And, a, and three times in Scripture, Abraham is called the friend of God. And that is a, that is a term that, that, that uh, implies a certain level of intimacy. When I think of my friends, I think of people that I can be myself around. I think of people that uh, I don't always have to say the right thing. They kind of know my heart when I, when I misspeak. I think of people that I can share the hard things of my life with and talk openly. And yet things have degenerated in the nation of Israel to the point where the disciples here, who I believe are part of the remnant, uh, they're God's people, they're the righteous in the nation, they've gotten to this point where they don't know how to pray. And they don't, that, that friendship that, that was the foundation of the faith, that God, that Abraham displayed, has, has gone away. And what happened during that intertestamental period was the Pharisees originally um, were called like the real worshipers. Basically, the nation got taken off into captivity. And when it came time, when they got back into the land, some of these guys were like, we never want this to happen again, right? We never want to. And so they started, uh, they wrote down the oral law. They started building a fence around the law, and they started, you know, adding rules to the Bible. And they took, and so the nation, with the help of our adversary, the devil started helping them drift away from this. Obviously, they've drifted away a lot if you read the Old Testament, but it drifted away in this particular manner where they're they're obeying, they're they're seeking. Uh, relationship with God through their actions instead of through their heart. And so, as a part of that, the nation got to this point where they're, only, they're no longer praying spontaneously like you and I do, like we've been taught to. Like um, they're, they're praying out of prayer books primarily. Some of it was scripture. If you read these prayers, a lot of them are good. But when you just sit there and you read a prayer out loud, Eventually, the connection between you and that prayer starts to drift away. And what Jesus, the disciples look here and they see Jesus, and he's got something else going on between him and the Father. This connection is there. And they want, it, they want a part of it. And they want to know how to pray. And so uh, my, other t- my other team members have talked about this, um, you know, how Jesus taught, taught them to pray and what the content of the prayer should be. But this morning, we're going to look at these two stories and uh, the two stories are are so neat because they don't just um, they don't talk to us about what our attitude needs to be as we go in prayer. It 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 talks to us about what how our Father in heaven feels about us and what His attitude was with us and, and His connection is to us and how that should inform us as we go before Him. Um. Heard it said that you can't really force yourself to trust someone. You can't force yourself to trust. When it, when I talk about my kids, you know, I'm trying to get my kids to jump in the pool, trying to get my kids to dive in head first. I'm sure you know this. You try and force a kid to do it. Does that work? Doesn't work. And we're kind of the same way. But what you can, if I, if if you're thinking about God calling you to do something, you, uh, and that thing crops up inside you where you feel like you'd rather die. Does it help to just 
kind of push yourself through? No. But when we focus on who it is that God is, when we focus on his character, when we focus on how he loves us, that change that's able to sink in and change and help us to be able to trust. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a little bit of that. Um, so before we get into this, these two stories, I want to talk a little bit about a, the kind of teaching method that Jesus is using in this passage. Um, the Jews have a term called kalv komer. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's a human hermeneutical method, and it means from the stronger case. And it, it has this, it's like a, a, a form of logic. Let's say, say you have two guys. You guys know Brian, right? Brian, I don't know if any of y'all went to work out with him, but he's, he's a strong guy. Probably stronger than most of us in here. He's pretty disciplined about his workout routine. Now, if Brian can lift, the, the idea is if Brian can lift 500 pounds and Levi can lift 100 pounds, if Levi can lift the rock, obviously Brian can lift the rock. Does that, does that kind of make sense? And God uses this multiple places throughout Scripture. In one of the places, I want to read you this little story um, with, uh, Moses, with Moses and Miriam and Aaron out of Numbers 12, because it's an example of God using this in another place. Because it's not just here. He uses this in other places in Scripture. Um, I don't know if I'm going to take full time to read this whole thing, but it says, it says in Numbers 12, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my, ser my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O Lord, I beg you, do not on account this sin to us. Do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly, and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when it comes from his mother's womb. Moses cried out to the Lord, O oh God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, and here it is, If her father had, put, had but spit in her face, would she not bear, shame for seven, bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterward she, she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. 
Just to summarize that story, basically, Miriam offended the Lord. And the Lord comes back with this logical argument. She said, he says, if you would have, she would have just offended her father, we would have put her outside the camp for seven days. But she offended me, and so we're going to give her the seven days, right? And the reason why I take the time to point that out is because when you, when you read this other story that Jesus gives us, the story of the, uh, the unwilling friend, um, the first time I read it, I kind of thought, well, Jesus is teaching uh, that we, we really just need to bug him. We need to bug our father more. We need to be, you know, he's not really willing, but if we go to him enough, then, uh, then he might answer our prayers. And I don't think that's what's going on here. Let, let's, dive in, let's dive into the parable. Let's dive into the parable. There's three characters in the story. Um, there's the friend. There's, the, there's basically the two friends that live in the same town, right? Um, and then there's the traveler that comes in. I'll read it again. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Um, I want you to imagine a first century home. I don't know if any of you guys have been to Israel, but they're more, or I don't know, there's different places with models, but most a big house back then had three rooms, and probably your average... Joe might have only had one or two rooms, and it was rock, and it was small. Probably would have had the kitchen in there. Your, your living space, you might have had one room for storing your food, your grain, everything, your living space, and basically sleeping on the floor, whatever makeshift beds you're having. And you and your wife are having as many kids as you can, so you could try and you know, build, the, build the business, have a, have a farm that's successful. And I just imagine me and James and... James and I are working out in the field that day, and we're talking, and I'm like, man, things are rough. You don't understand. The baby's been up all night, every night. We have, we're not getting any sleep. Laura's up. You know, she's, she's at the end of her rope. She's exhausted. You know, it's been, so he knows what's going on. And James comes over to me in the middle of the night and says, get up and give me some loaves of bread. And I'm like, look, man, you don't understand. This, this, this isn't just me getting up. This is me waking up my whole family. Everything's not good. Please, just, just leave me alone, right? But uh, in, the, in the example here, Jesus tells him, because of his persistence, in other words, even in this situation, the friend gets up and gives him the bread. And the implication here is that in this extreme situation, where it's totally not in the heart of the person to give uh, what we're asking. You end up getting what you're asking. But with our Father in Heaven, it, it's not that way. <clears throat> he, he is concerned about us. He's concerned about every little, every little part of our lives. And He repeatedly calls on us to go before Him and, and to press into His presence and, and ask Him. And so it's actually the opposite. Does our God sleep? Does he get tired? No. Psalm 121, it says, 
From where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We know that our, our Father in heaven doesn't have these same physical needs or physical problems. And he <clears throat> is eager to hear our request. And, they, and then Jesus goes on and it says, He who, where does it say? For, for, I, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and, him to, and to him who knocks it will be opened. So Jesus calls us here to, to go to the Lord seeking, searching. Um, our prayer life, he's kind of giving the idea of that, that it's like a journey, right? When we, go, when we start our relationship with the Lord, when we go to the Lord, we don't always know what it is that we're looking for, right? We don't always know what it is that we should be asking for. But our spirit is calling to us, to go to him, and he's promising that he's going to guide us on that journey. I remember back when I was in college, I read this book uh, by Saul Bellow. It's a secular book, and in the book, it's totally non-Christian. Uh, the main character throughout the story, he, he keeps having this uh, thought, and the thought is, I want, I want, I want. And and he's just so unfulfilled. Um, and Jesus is calling us here to find our fulfillment in our Father in heaven. <clears throat> so before I dig any deeper, I'm going to go on to the second half of the second story. And that's the, the, con the contrast that he paints with the evil father. Right? It says, for everyone, it says, now suppose one of your you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You know, not all of us have the best dads in the world. I'm sure some of y'all don't have an amazing dad, but my dad's a pretty generous guy. You know, there's a lot of stories I could think of in my life. My dad gave me some pretty cool things. Uh, I'm sure some of y'all have those same, those same stories. I remember... When we lived in Costa Rica, we were missionaries in Costa Rica, and uh, my dad got, got into playing ping pong, because that was pretty much the only thing they could do. There was a, there was a table, tennis table there on the, the campus of the school, the language school, and he had a pretty nice paddle, and somehow he knew that these catalogs would come. Uh, I don't know how he got the catalog, but there's the Paddle Palace catalog, and in it are these the, probably the, are the best paddles in the world. And I got to looking through that thing, and I, I found one that I wanted. And it was about, it was the Stiga Clipper. And it was, it was uh, about, a, I'm guessing, a $70, $80, $90 paddle. And the rubber for it, I picked the rubber for it, and it was probably another $40 or $50 for the rubber for it. And 
I started bugging my dad for it. Wouldn't you know I got that paddle? Now, my dad's a generous dad, but it's, it, we were missionaries. I don't know how much we made. It was probably less than $30,000 a year. So there, we didn't have a lot of extra money. My dad gets me this paddle. And um, just a cool story about, you know, our, one of my earthly father doing something for me, right, that was kind of exorbitant. Um, but it kind of pales in comparison to what our Heavenly Father does, does for us. Does for us. Um, when we think of... Uh, You know, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on here and pay, because he. Let's, I want to skip ahead a little further down. We're thinking of good gifts, right? When we think of good gifts, what do you think about stuff? That's what I think of when I read this. When I read this for the first time, you're reading down and it's talking about the earthly fathers and. It's talking about uh, giving them a fish or giving them an egg, something to eat, physical stuff. And, and then he says, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so when I, re when I read that the first time, it's just kind of just not what my logical mind expected. Because it seems like he should say, a house or a car, or something so big your earthly father can't give it to you, but you know you need to ask. So you ask God for it. Um, but Jesus here is, he's always, he's always taking, um, he's always taking and, and reflecting what is actually going on. He's taking, he's taking, uh, when we're so focused on the material world, the temporal world, He's shifting it to, to God's reality. And God sees what our real problems are. He sees what we're really hungry for. And so he, he says here that he's going to give them the Holy Spirit if they pray for it. And really, it's an example of God giving us the ultimate good gift. Now, I want to take a second here and just talk about the Holy Spirit, talk about some of the things he does in our life. Um, because it's a, it gives us a clear picture of what a Father in Heaven's attitude toward, toward us is and what He wants for us. Um, we know that the, in the Old Testament, if you think about the disciples, they, they were pre-Pentecost. And pre-Pentecost, the Holy Spirit wasn't just in, indwelling every believer like it is today. And... The, the disciples would have had the examples of Joseph or Daniel, these people that were in, indwelt by the Holy Spirit for God's purposes. Um, the guys that were creating the uh, tabernacle, God, the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord was on them in order to do that. But that wouldn't have necessarily applied to just every person that was around her in that day. And so they would have they would have been wondering as as followers, you know, what is it that I've got to do? What if I want to be one of those kind of guys? What is it that I've got to do to 
to have that kind of relationship. I think we think of our, I, I kind of as a kid thought the same way, you know, and I think of Daniel, I think of this incredible saint, and he was. Um, but to some degree, we have the same resources available to us that he did. Um, and that is a gift of God to us. And this prayer that, he, that Jesus directs the, the disciples to pray gets answered. If you read Acts 1, after Jesus has, has departed, the, the disciples, they, they're, they're hanging out in Jerusalem because that's what God commanded them to do, Jesus commanded them to do, and they're devoting themselves to prayer. And shortly after that, the Holy Spirit comes comes and God God grants them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's an example of God answering that prayer for them, giving them giving them that that amazing gift. And if you're a believer here this morning, God has given that gift to you. I think it's so easy. It's one of the reasons it's easy to look at this this verse and think Oh, I need to pray to receive the Holy Spirit. The, the New Testament clearly teaches that if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, and He's indwelling you right now. Um, Romans 8 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. So it doesn't matter if you feel like it or not. It doesn't matter if you sin today or not. Some bad thoughts came through your mind. You have the Holy Spirit with you right now if you're a believer. It's so easy for us to get disconnected from that fact. You know, the, one of the, one of the uh, ministries of the Holy Spirit is that he te testifies to us of the fact that we're sons and daughters of, the, of God. And just from personal experience that I heard some other preachers say this, if you're struggling with your adoption, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're, you don't, you're wondering about your salvation, but you've trusted the, if you've trusted Jesus, the, the answer to that would be li listen to what the Holy Spirit's asking you to do. What is, what is he calling from the word? What is he calling you to do to obey? And when we obey we, we show, we put to death our flesh. You know, Christ, we were crucified with Christ. And that, that it, the Holy Spirit allows that truth to be made known to us when we surrender to his work in our lives. And that is the most, that, that, that position that we have as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father is the most, that's extreme, is I won't say the most, but it's a very, very powerful truth that will and that will change your life. And no matter where you no matter where you are here today, some of you guys are much more mature than me. But if you can let that sink in a little deeper, if you can let that become a little bit more real to you, if you can let that become a little bit more serious, if if the reality of it is is a little deeper. Then your ability, then you're going to change. Um, one of the other benefits of the Holy Spirit that we 
that we experience is the sealing of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So, if you were, you know, there's two uh, common I guess analogies that people use to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this regard. One of them is the idea of earnest money. This Holy Spirit of promise has the idea of earnest. When you're when you're buying a house, you put down earnest money. That shows show that the buyer, show the seller, the buyer puts that show the seller they're serious. They're not wasting their time, right? There's that time period when you're doing all the paperwork and you're checking out the house, and that person can't sell their house while they're doing that. So they ask for that earnest money. And God has sent his Holy Spirit here to us to show us that he's serious, to show us that the promise that he's made to us to redeem us one day is real. Um, what's that song we sing? Uh, the Revelation song. We all sing it together, it's, and it has a line in it. There's a spirit move among us, and we sing it. And if you believe that, that is, that, is, that is proof positive that what God has started in your life, he's going to finish. And that's, that's a really, really big deal. You know, we, so many ways it feels like we just have to have blind faith. Jesus, Jesus died 2,000 years ago, right? But we have the Holy Spirit. That isn't blind faith. That is God giving something to us that is tangible. Now, it's tangible spiritually, but we're spiritual beings. Um, the other analogy is the analogy of registered mail. I don't know if y'all have heard this before. Uh, Ryrie uses it, but it's uh, when you when you mail a piece of registered mail, they they seal it up, they tape that envelope, they stamp it, and it can only be allowed to be opened by the person that that it's supposed to be opened by. And when you get, when God when you become a believer in the Lord. He seals you up. He puts you in that envelope and he mails it back to himself. And he's the only one that's allowed to touch that. Nobody else is allowed to touch that. And that's our that's what you and I's position is as sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. And so I want to move on a little bit to what that relationship is really like. There's a y'all know y'all have heard Dwight Eisenhower, right? He was a uh, 34th president of the United States. My dad had a preacher that used this analogy, and I want to use it. So, uh, White had a son named David. David was born in 1948, and David was asked, "When did you realize there was something different about your dad?" Right? Dwight Eisenhower was a five-star general. He was uh, had a pretty illustrious career. He planned the invasion into North Africa during World War II. He uh, was the head of NATO forces, and he went on to be president of the United States. And so, you know, he's a, he's a big weight. He's a big deal. And they asked David, they said, David, when did you realize your dad was somebody special? And he said, I was in a hotel room somewhere overseas. And I was a little kid. I was in there with my family. My dad was in there. And 
the hotel room had a balcony. And I opened that door and went out on that balcony. And it looks down and he sees all these troops down there. Those troops immediately, upon seeing that door open, they stand at attention. And they thought that Dwight was coming out. But really it was just his son. But they immediately reacted like that. And we are in a similar kind of family, but on a, on a spiritual level. You know, our, one of the purposes of the Old Testament is we, it reminds us of the holiness of God. You know, so much of the New Testament is about establishing what I'm talking about this morning. That our position in Christ, um, what the benefits, what, what Jesus has bought for us in our relationship with God. But in the Old Testament, the believers, the you know, the disciples, their, their experience was one of a God that was difficult to, somewhat difficult to approach. You had one, pre, you had one guy, the uh, chief priest, could go into the Holy of Holies on one day of the year. So one guy in the whole world, one day a year, can go in there. And he went there only with, uh, to give a sacrifice. And they tied a rope around his leg in case he died. So it... It's a very serious thing. And our God is the creator of the universe. And he is all-powerful and all-knowing. And he is perfect in every way. And yet, this passage reminds us that we're not, that we're supposed to be in that hotel room with him. That's how much he cares about us. That's, that's our position as his sons and daughters. You know, it, I think it's easy, if you take the analogy a little further, as Christians, to, to be one of those troops that's down there on the balcony instead of the kid. You know, we, we know we're on the right team, but we don't, and we stand at attention, but we don't allow ourselves to really draw near to him in the same way that a child would draw near to his father. Um, I want to take a second and just talk about what Jesus did for us to get us into that family, Right? Because he paid a steep price. And I, I know I've talked about this before, so forgive me, but the book of Ruth is an analogy for what Jesus did for us. You got, you got the characters of Ruth and Naomi. So Naomi is, Naomi is married. She goes off to Moab. She's married to her husband, and she has two sons. And a, uh, a famine comes, and... They leave Israel, and they go to Moab, and they're living there during the famine, and Naomi's husband and two sons die. And basically, she's left with nothing in a foreign country, except for these two daughter-in-laws. One of them doesn't return with her, and she goes, she hears that the famine is over, and she goes back to, to Israel, and she has literally nothing. Right? Um, and she has to, she, she goes and I guess God leads her to try and seek, he sets something in the, up in the law called the kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman, rede the kinsman redeemer, with somebody, if you had somebody in your family, in other words, someone connected to your land, so uh, they've lost their land, they can buy it back for you. They can pay the price for you to come back, but you kind of got to get married back into the family. And in the case of 
Ruth and Naomi, Ruth goes with Naomi and she's willing to, Ruth is willing to, to be the woman to marry back in the family. And uh, they find someone who is able, who's in the family to buy him back, Boaz. And in the story, there's actually two guys that are able to, that are, they're able to buy him back. There's Boaz and there's another guy, I guess a cousin, a closer relative. And they go to Boaz first. Boaz says, I'm willing to, but there's someone closer. And the second guy, he's able to. In other words, he has the money. Think about, think about it this way. You, you've, you've, you've hit hard times, and you basically sold everything you had, probably for next to nothing. And now hard times are over, and everything that you had is probably worth double what it was before. You can't, you can't buy it back. So there has to be somebody with the money to buy that back. And then they have to be willing to buy it back. The, co the, the cousin, the guy closer to, the, to Boaz, isn't willing to buy it back. And what's the reason? The reason is he doesn't want to dilute his inheritance. In other words, he has kids, and he says, my kids are going to get less if I bring you in. They're all going to have to get, it all get divided up. And this is cool because it's a, it's a picture of what Jesus did, right? He... We didn't have anybody in our family that could do it. So what did God do? He's, he made Jesus, he, he had his son become a human being, become part of our family, so that there would be someone available to pay the price. And then he had to live a perfect, a holy, sinless life. From the moment he got up to the moment he went to bed, the entire, his entire life, he lived perfectly so he'd have what it took to pay the price. And then... He was willing to pay the price. You know, our Father in Heaven, it cost Him something. It cost His kids something to get us back, right? It, in a way, diluted his, his inheritance. He gave His only Son, right, so that He could buy us back. It's so much like, you know, sin in our lives. You think a famine came, and it, it's like a test comes on your life. How often in your life in my life, do, does something hard happen? It could be just as simple as a bad night's sleep, right? Instead of having faith, instead of staying in, in, in the country, instead of trusting God, they shouldn't have left the nation of Israel when they went over to Moab. Instead of doing that, I fall into sin. And in that sin, I, in a way, sell off a portion of my land, right? And there's no way to buy that back, right? Um, Give an analogy. I yelled at my son Boaz the other day in a really just nasty way, right? Uh, I can't remember what was going on, but uh, lost my patience and I screamed at him. There's no doubt that that hurt him on a deep level, that something happened inside, and I can apologize for that. I could try and make up for it, but I can't take it back. Only God can fix the broken areas of our lives. Only God can pay for us what, what, what we foolishly throw away, right? And he's done that for us. He's done that to bring us into his family, to make up for all, of, all the stuff that we've done wrong, and to pay what no man can pay. Psalm 49.7 says, No man can by any means redeem his brother. Or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly. We can't, we can't do it. 
Um, and so, thankfully, we have a Father in Heaven that's willing to do it for us. <clears throat> and so the question before us this morning is, God has given us these, um, this clear picture of the way He feels about us. Uh, this clear picture of His fatherly love towards us. And the question is, are we going to pray? Are we going to press into that relationship? I want to skip ahead. For whoever on the preach team gets this passage, forgive me, but I'm skipping ahead to a place in Luke. But in Luke 18, 1, Jesus says, Now he was telling them a parable to show that all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a, while, for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord has said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will... Not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So this is another example of the same hermeneutic, so to speak. But at the end, Jesus says, even though God, the example here is an unrighteous judge who gives justice anyways. In, in, the, in the passage we're looking at this morning, we're seeing the example of an unwilling friend or an evil father who still does good things. And, he, he's, and in the example of the unrighteous judge, the question is, will he find faith on the earth? And the question for you and me is, he's told us that he loves us. He's told us that he wants to hear from us. He's told us that he wants this deep relationship with us. And the question for you and me is, Will will we will God find prayer in our lives? Will He find that connection in our lives, nonetheless? And it's a, it's a tough thing, right? Prayer is not easy. You know, uh, we have an adversary, the devil, that will do anything to keep us from finding joy and satisfaction in our relationship with the Lord. There's multiple the the scripture when when Jesus tells us a. Uh, a story, usually it's a big deal. And that, that principle behind it is usually repeated in Scripture. In our, throughout the New Testament, we're commanded to pray the old, in the Old Testament. Jesus commanded us here to pray right here in 18.1. In 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's God's will for you to pray. In Ephesians 6.18, it says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all per perseverance and petition for all the saints. He's commanding us to pray. You know, the preach team has spent, all, all us guys have spent a long time talking about the Lord's Prayer. It's been several weeks, so we, re we really slowed it down. Um. I'm into archery, and I was 
I was watching a video as the guy was saying, shoot one arrow at a time, right? Because I'm, I'm struggling. I'm trying to get better, and I'm not really getting better. So I stopped shooting five or six arrows at a time, and I started shooting one at a time. And it does help. It helps you focus on what's going on. And I think as a church, God has arranged for us to shoot one arrow here for a second. And that one arrow is a focus on our prayer life. And after this morning, we're going to be moving on somewhat. And the opportunity to think about it will move on as a body. And uh, the challenge is the same for me as it is for you. This has really challenged me in my life. Am I really going to spend time in prayer with my father? Do I, do I really believe that I should be doing it? Does it really mean something to me? Um, and so my challenge is for you guys is to pray. This challenge is the same for me. Uh, it's a good model to pray, for, pray right when you, the moment you wake up. Let your first thought be a prayer to your Father. Tide the first portion of your day. These are all shoulds. So I've got to be careful about that because, you know, you don't have to do these things. But for me, when I pray right when I wake up, when I, before I spend, start off my day, I press into with, to the Lord with time of prayer. The whole day is able to be on that foundation of my connection with my Father. It's so easy to forget about who we are. It's so easy to, so much of the Christian life is just a, a fight against forgetting. A, forgot, a fight against forgetting what our weaknesses are. A fight, a fight of forgetting that we are dependent on Him. And when you spend, if you go through, as the guy said, and go through this prayer and let it, let it be a pattern for your prayer, it will change your life. It will change your life. That my dad, I remember going to this synagogue. You know, we were witnessing to this guy. And uh, he said, they would, they'll read the Shema there. You know, and it's a rote. I mean, it's the, it's the word, but it's not like you and I pray. And he said, do this every day. It'll change your life. Now, for you and I, that's true. If we pray every day, it'll change our life. Uh, um, I want to challenge you kids. If you're in this room, you're under the age 18. You are not too young to start praying, all right? Your prayer life can start now. Ezra, Boaz, listen. <laughs> Pray before you go to sleep. Pray when you wake up in the morning. I know that God somehow, that's how he started me out. He started me out as a kid. And nobody else is around. I remember talking about prayer meetings. It just, it seemed like the worst thing in the world, right? Sitting trying to pray for an hour. Are you kidding me? But you're not too young. Before you go to bed at night, sit there and talk to the Lord about everything that happened that day. Talk to him about what's on your heart. Start developing that relationship now. Um, you don't need to be an adult for your spiritual life to mature. 
I'm going to finish with one, one last line of reasoning. <laughs> it's a little bit challenging, so try and stick with me here. Our prayer life is a reflection of what we truly believe. Psalm 14, it says, the fool has... Yeah, back up. I'm going to first go to Matthew 6, 5. There's another... The other, the other version of the Lord's Prayer is in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 6. And Jesus challenges them in verse 5. He says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack here, but I know I've, I've heard that my whole life. And the first thing I think is, man, I, I would never do that, right? I mean, who here is standing on a street corner and praying? Um, right, so it doesn't really even apply to us, right? And there's a lot of passages in the Bible that talk about the Pharisees. And when, when the Pharisees or somebody from the leadership gets criticized by the Lord, we ought to watch out because that can be us, right? How often are we tempted to some kind of pretense in our life where we try and act good and look good, and on the inside we're a mess? Is that any different than what's going on here? Um, that in this situation, these hypocrites, their God isn't the God they're praying to. Their God is the people around them, right? That's that, what, that performance they're giving, they're hoping to get their reward from, right? And when we live lives as Christians, where we're trying to somewhat live the Christian life, but we're not spending time with our Lord, something's off, right? Something is missing. It's all coming out of the wrong place. In Psalm 14, uh, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So the verse, it starts out with the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. When I read that, I'm like, doesn't apply to me, right? But then, quickly, it changes to say, there is, they have all turned aside. That does include me. When I started thinking about this, I don't that quickly fall into there is no God, right? But when I sin, when I start getting off track of my walk, when I fall into condemnation, different things come into play. I don't say there is no God, but I say God doesn't care. It's a subtle lie that can creep into our minds, right? He's, he's not that concerned about me. He's not worried about my problem. It's up to me. You know, he's not going to save me out of this. It's, it's, it's subtle, but when we don't go before him, we're not believing what Jesus is saying, that he cares and that he rewards us, right? There's a reward in itself for going before the Lord. In Hebrews 11.6, it says, By faith Enoch was taking, 
taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. So he was pleasing to God. What pleased him? And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God and must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. When we don't spend time in prayer, we're not, we don't have that faith. We're not, we're not seeking the Lord with our life. Um, and our, our life really isn't built on the right foundation. You know, Jesus told the, uh, the story of the two foundations, the foundation of sand and the foundation of rock. It says in Matthew 7, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and it slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its was the fall, was its fall. Now at first it just seems like a simple do what I say. If you don't do what I'm calling you to do in this passage, um, you know, you're building your house on the the wrong foundation. But it's a it's a lot more subtle than that in our lives. It's very easy to start making things that should be the walls of our house, the foundation. Heard this from a guy named Bill Counts. Anyways, he's one of my favorite preachers. But he, he said, it's very easy to make something like your family, which should be a wall from your house, your foundation. Or your career, your foundation. Or... Any other, any something, any something, something else, it's a good thing, but you're kind of subtly building your life on it, right? Every relationship that you have right now is going away. Um, life is a, dis a big disappointment for all of us outside of the Lord. I've sit there, you all know, I have to do my one nursing analogy, but I've been, I've been in a lot of rooms with people dying of COVID. And I've been with a lot of people on the last day of their conscious life. And there's, because of the rules set up by the hospitals, you're in a room by yourself, slowly suffocating, and your family can't be there, right? I'm sure they want to be there with you. You know, I'm sure you want to be there with them, but they, they're not allowed, right? And whether or not those rules continue or not, they're, we're all going to come to a place where everything that we have on this earth is going away and our families are going away. You know, I'm investing in my kids. They're going to grow off and get married and move away. I'm, I love my, my wife and we're, we're investing in our marriage, but one of us could die. One of them is, one of us is going to die unless we die at the same time. And there's one thing in your life that's going to last forever. And that's your relationship with the Lord. And so my exhortation to you this morning is the same one I give myself, and that's to spend, spend time with them because that's never going away. It'll change you. You know, in the, in the first, in the first uh, 
In the first story, the unwilling friend, what does he go to the Lord for? He goes to the Lord for his friend, for the, for the guy that's coming to visit him, right? Because he wanted to give us something. If you're a believer in this room and God is changing your heart, probably one of the deepest desires of your heart is to be able to love others, right? To be able to be the person that God created you to be. How does that happen? It happens when we spend time with the Lord. He transforms us. And so my call to all of us this morning is if you're not investing that time, it's worth it. It's going to be worth it. You're going to find that you're going to find joy and satisfaction in your time with the Lord. You know, it's easy for us to just sit here and make text messages. I've, I've heard somebody, one of my friends said this to me once. I've just been sending text messages to the Lord instead of sitting down with Him. And these, our prayer life gets shorter and shorter, and we don't discipline ourselves. We're just shooting, shooting up these little messages instead of taking the time to spend with Him. You know, it's, it's not, there's, there's two kinds of friends in your life. There's a kind of friend that you catch up with every now and then. And there's the kind of friend that's living it out with you. And that's what the Lord wants to be. He wants to be with you every day, walking through whatever you're going through to support you. I'll leave it at that. Let's close with prayer.